verse 14. And as many of you will know, if not all of you, Song of Solomon is a love poem. It's concerned uh, a series of events that occur between, we believe, King Solomon and a woman who's just known as the Shulamite woman. And uh, <coughs> this is the last scene of that. We've been looking at it in two ways. One is the fact just simply that it is a love poem and the things that advice that can be taken from that, what we can learn from that. And the other is, as we've read in Ephesians 5, how the illustration is of marriage is that of Christ and the church. And we've been looking at our relationship between Jesus uh, and the church. And I know that there's some Christians who think it should only be the last one and other Christians who think it should only be the first one. But I think, as I said before, there's good reason for seeing it in both ways. So let's read Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 8. We have a young sister. These are the friends who are speaking. We have a young sister and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister for the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, O Solomon, and two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. You who dwell in the gardens with friends in attendance, let me hear your voice. Come away, my lover, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. Lord, again, we ask that you would just help us as we look at your word and that you would help us to understand it and to apply it. We thank you for this book. We thank you that we've been able to look at it over these past weeks and that there's been so much to learn. We pray that what is said would be of you and that above all, we would come to know you. We pray in terms of our, our own relationships for married couples, for uh, boyfriend and girlfriend, for engaged <coughs> couples, for single people, for all of us here, that we would be able to reflect upon our relationships with other people biblically, and that we would follow what your word says. For you are our maker, and your intention for us is only good. In your name we ask it. Amen. Okay. Um, As I say, it's been a privilege in one sense to teach on this, and I've learned a huge amount studying it, and um, sometimes preaching, it's a bit like tripping in a a minefield. Well, this is just a massive minefield, and uh, I offer any apologies to anyone who's been offended by anything I said, or uh, if it's not been biblical, just ignore it. But if it's biblical, don't uh, dare ignore it. In Proverbs chapter 30 and at verse 18, we read this. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden. Human relationships are incredibly complicated, and uh, we As we've looked at this song and as we continue to look at it, you'll see something of that complication. 
Here is, um, we're going to basically focus uh, more on the Shulamite woman. She's the person who's done most of the speaking in this song. And here she is. She's a woman with issues of, how will I put it, self-esteem issues. And I have to be quite careful here how I, I phrase all of this, but these are really, really important issues. She's really saying in this that she is not somebody's property. She's actually referring back into chapter 1 and verse 5, where she says, Dark am I yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I have neglected. Now when she is in this section in chapter 8, what, it, what she's saying is that she is like a wall, and we're going to look at that first. Is it, oops, can I, is it not going on? Help. I'm going to move it on one for me, please. Uh. That's it. Okay. Solomon the Shulamite and Shalom. Now, I like alliteration, but this is not me doing this. This is what Solomon does here. The three words are tied in very closely together, and most of the people who are writing on this think that it is actually a play on words. Simon and Garfunkel have a song which goes, I am an island, I am a rock. Well, here is a woman, and she's saying, I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Now, I suspect that most of the ladies here would not introduce themselves in that way, uh, or would not describe yourselves in that way. It does seem just different for us, but let's see what that means. There are um, several things that are happening. The first part in verses 8 and 9, the friends are talking about their friend, this young sister, and they're talking about her before she's grown and matured. Verse 10 speaks about her growing and maturing. You can look at this in two ways. One is of a loving, caring family and friends who protect their young sister from misuse or from abuse. Before she was fully developed, she says, her breasts not grown. Her older brothers looked out for her. What shall we do for our sister for the day she's spoken for? The day she's spoken for is her wedding day. There's a possibility the father was not around, but certainly from a very young time, very early time, this girl was looked after by her brothers. Goes back to one of the things that we've noticed before that uh, sex education, by the time you get it in school, is probably a bit late for many people, and that even when it is done in school, the main teaching about sexual relationships should come from the home, best of all. Now there's a, a problem, or not a problem, but there's a, a difference of understanding about what is happening here. Some people think that this is a loving family, her brothers seeking to uh, keep her body, to encourage her to keep her body for the one she was marrying. Others think that these are overprotective brothers who are being very intrusive. They are um, not just being protective, but they're being uh, almost oppressive. I think in the context, the most likely scenario is the first one. 
We've talked a little bit about what you'd look for in marriage. We don't do arranged marriages here normally, though myself and Annabelle are both up for negotiation if anyone wants to. No, I shouldn't say that. But we don't do arranged marriages in our culture. But I wonder what you feel about the idea. Supposing you're going out with somebody, do you think if you're a young man that you should go to the young woman's husband? Uh, sorry, the young woman's. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work too well, is it? <laughs> go to the young woman's husband and ask, can you marry her husband? No. Do you think you should go to the young woman's father and, and ask permission? Or does that sound really old-fashioned? Does that sound surely... I mean, if you're a young woman, do you think that that makes you sound as though you are owned? Well, I hope not. I hope not, because in, in many ways, it's actually probably a good idea to let your prospective partner meet the family and friends. And I just can't help when I say meet the family or meet the friends. Of, th think of the, you know, the sort of comedy films, meet the parents, that, that kind of thing. Derek Thomas, who preached here a while ago, he has, when he was writing about this, he describes about how when his daughter was going out with someone, he had an application form for the young man who was coming around. And I think the guy must have been terrified because he read it out to him. And it said, um, uh, the questions were, do you own a truck with oversized tires? Do you have an earring, a nose ring, a belly button ring, or a tattoo? In 25 words or less, what does late mean to you? In 25 words or less, what does don't touch my daughter mean to you? In two words, what does abstinence mean? And so on. I gave a list of things, and of course, um, he wasn't exactly being serious, but I'm sure the guy was terrified uh, initially. But it is actually, there's a balance, isn't there, between people being intrusive and your your mother or your father saying, oh, you should marry someone like this, or your friends saying, oh, no, we don't like them. There's a balance between that and not hearing advice in terms of what other people say or think. And I think that that's perhaps a little bit of what is going on here. But the most significant thing that's happening here is that She's given, or she's herself describing herself in two ways, either as a wall or as a door. Now, she says, I am a wall. The brothers say, if she's a wall, we'll build towers of silver. If she's a door, we'll enclose her with panels of cedar. Now, what she's saying about the, do the door is just simply this. If she's a door, we're going to lock her in. <laughs> we're going to board her up. Because the imagery that's being used speaking about what she does with herself and what she does with her own body in terms of, of uh, her sexuality, in terms of sexual promiscuity and so on, you have a choice. And I think, and I think, again, I want to be careful here because the implication always seems to be that it's the responsibility of the woman to remain chaste and a virgin and so on. And, well, boys will be boys. It's not so significant for the men. Well, biblically, that is absolute nonsense. The same thing does apply to the men as well. But here, for this woman, she's saying, she's been told you can be a wall or you can be a door. Now, the door is straightforward. She's somebody who opens to all, who flirts, who is sexually promiscuous, really, available in current jargon, I suppose, easy. 
And the brothers are saying, no, if she's a door, we're going to enclose her with panels of cedar. Or she can be a wall. And the wall is a, a, a different idea. It is the idea of protection. It is the idea of uh, not being somebody who is just available to everyone. Now, there's a, there's a, a game or a manipulative device that young men use, that teenage boys use. And it's just simply this, that uh, they go and ask a girl if she wants to go out or if she wants to go on a date or whatever. And she says no. And then they say, oh, you're frigid. Remember, uh, there's a very beautiful young lady I knew, and a lot of guys were really upset at her because she was very beautiful, and they called her the Ice Queen. Because when she was asked to go out, she'd just say no. And they were just, they couldn't understand it. I mean, they were just incredibly handsome. And why would any woman not want to go out with them? And it really got to their egos and got to their, but she was just absolutely adamant about what she wanted to do. And I was, I actually really admired her. But sometimes there's a tremendous pressure actually put on both young girls and young boys that there's something wrong with you if you're not sexually active. And I do have to say that one of the dangers in terms of sex education in schools is that it leans towards that. Now, sometimes it depends who's teaching it. But it certainly does very little to turn away the pressure from that. I remember speaking to a whole group of young boys at a youth club, and every single one of them were boasting about how they were involved sexually and so on. And I just thought, this is incredible. They're 15, 16 years old. Together, when they talked about things, they were, oh, we've done this, no, we've done that. But you know, most of them, when I spoke to them individually, they hadn't been involved at all. But they just felt the pressure that there would be something wrong. What's wrong with you? Now, for some people, that doesn't work. For me, uh, I remember as a teenage boy, that never worked at all. When anybody said to me, why don't you do it? Everybody else is doing it. I, I just rebelled against everything, including my own peers who wanted to pressurize me into doing stuff. I said, why? You think that's going to make me do it because everybody else is doing it. That's the almost opposite reason. But for a lot of people, I think there is a, there's just an enormous pressure and here is this young lady, and she's really determined. She's saying, I'm not going there. I am a wall. And actually, I suspect the choice is not so much between a wall and a door, between a wall, uh, a wall and a doormat. Verse 10, she's matured. She's grown up physically. She's talking about her marriage. She brings contentment in the marriage. Uh, contentment, the translation for it is peace or wholeness. That's how you get Solomon, the Shulamite and shalom. She's talking about being made complete. In other words, she's saying, I did this. I kept my own vineyard. I was a wall. I've got married. She, as you read through the rest of this song, she's very explicit in how she describes her husband's body and so on. This is not some kind of repressed religious person. She's amazing, she's free, she's liberated, she's passionate, and she's able to say, I am a wall. That is a great gift, whether you are male or female, to be able to give uh, to your partner on the day of your wedding. But that does create a problem for a lot of people, and especially in our culture, and it creates a problem for a lot of Christians. 
Because what if you're not in that position? What if you say, actually, I wasn't. Actually, before I became a Christian, I live a lifestyle which was sexually active and sexually promiscuous. How does that affect things? Well, how it affects things is simply this. You can't do anything about it. And you've been forgiven. You repent, unlike the woman at the well, or the woman who was caught in adultery, rather. Go and sin no more, is what is being told. But what that, we, we have that forgiveness that is available. And for, for anyone who's struggling with that, then you do seek and find that forgiveness in Christ. But I, I do especially want to say to those of you who sometimes feel enormously pressured by our culture and our society, don't do it because it's not worth it. You wait. You, you decide if you're going to be a wall or a door. Now, <coughs> people mock in the United States and a little bit in this country, they've had the kind of vow of abstinence and the rings and all the rest of it. Maybe it's a gimmick. Maybe it doesn't work. I don't know. But the determination that that is going to be the case should be something that should be taught to our young people, to our children from the very beginning. Secondly, she then talks, well, that's what I'm saying about being free and forgiven. She talks about love, buying love. Solomon had a vineyard in Belhamon. He led out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. There's a different thing being said here. She's saying, first of all, I valued myself so much, I didn't feel the need to be sexually promiscuous. I didn't feel that I had to give in. When people slagged me, when people made jokes about me, when people called me frigid, when people said, oh, no, no, you're not going to be fully human unless, and so on, I just didn't go in for all of that. But what she's also saying here in terms of, of, of self-worth is value. She's really saying, I am not property. My own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, O Solomon, and 200 are for those who tend its fruit. She's saying, I can't be bought. That's the theme that goes back to verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. I am not for sale. Our body is not for hire or for advertising or for sexual transactions. <coughs> Gledhill says this, commercialization of sex stems from a loss of a sense of personhood. Sex becomes a thing to be experienced apart from the dimension of a personal committed relationship. It's strange that we're supposed to live in a liberated society, but in our liberated society, sex is still used as the primary means of advertising for many people and, or, and many products. And... It's still used as a means to get advancement in jobs, as a means to get on in life, as a means to make friends. In other words, it's not just prostitutes who are out on the street who sell their bodies, but there are many other ways of prostituting yourself. It's like, what do you do if you're offered a job in a restaurant and... The boss who owns the restaurant says, okay, I want you to dress in a particular way, and it's in a sexually provocative way. 
You get the job because you've got a good figure and you're good looking, not because you're waitressing skills. It's really demeaning. In the United States, there's a series of uh, restaurants called Hooters and people think this is tremendously funny and, and, and so on. Well, I don't think it's funny at all because it's, it's displaying women as objects of men's personal gratification. It's, of course, what's wrong with pornography. And we must make sure that we, we just don't fall into that trap. I think it's one of the ways that we rebel against the culture of our society. It's not that Christians are prudish about sex. It's not that we turn away from it. It's not that we, we go the route of um, some of the early church fathers and other people as well who've, who've kind of taught, oh, this is not good, this is bad, or almost this is, why did God, it was almost like they questioned the way that God made us. We rejoice in the way that God made us, and as is in this song, we celebrate God's gift of sexual relationships. But we refuse to cheapen it, and we refuse to go along with our society's largely cheap and nasty view of sex. And you will pay a price for that. You refuse to live like that you will pay a price, but you'll pay a far bigger price if you don't, because you retain some degree of self-respect and dignity. Love cannot be bought. William Blake, in his poem, The Clod and the Pebble, says this, Love seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself hath any care, but for another gives its ease, and build a heaven in hell's despair. There's just that desire that certainty that we are when we love somebody when we are committed to somebody that that is something that's deep and something that's personal and something that is intimate and then at the very end she makes two requests or there are two requests there one is let me hear your voice let me hear your voice. The lover wants to hear his wife's voice. Couples are actually meant to talk. Again, it's, I think it's good advice. It's advice that I've heard given in different contexts, in different ways. But if you're going out with somebody and you find that you're more concerned about what you do physically than you are about talking together, there's something that is wrong. You delight in the sound of the voice of your loved one. It's why you phone, but not just why you phone. It's why you are together and you talk together and you share together. And then verse 14, come away, my lover, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laid mountains. What this is, is this is one of these old-fashioned films that when it gets to the end, and John Wayne meets his beautiful lady, finally got her, and they're just about to kiss, and the curtains close. And that's it. They don't tell you what happens. You all know what's happening. Well, here, this is this song closing in exactly that same way. Be like a young stag. That's the equivalent of a stud. You know, be, just be, be like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. And as you read through this book, if you've been following this, uh, that's basically referring to her own body. 
And she's saying, let's just go away and let's be together. And the curtain closes and that's the end of the song. Now, there's not an embarrassment about talking about sex. There's not an embarrassment about saying this is what we are doing. We're, we're going to make love and this is the context in which we are doing it. It's saying there's still growth, there's still development to be had. And that's where the whole poem ends. I think the, the poem as a whole describes some of the ups and downs of relationships, describes some of the problems and sorrows and joys and opportunities of being together. I think as you read through this, this whole book, it's, it's giving a very positive teaching about sex, about human sexuality, but I think it's also telling us very, very clearly that it should be done within the context of one man and one woman and that it is special. Now, as I said, there are some people for whom you're saying, whoa, that's too late for me. No, it's not. There's forgiveness and renewal and so on, and that's what you seek. But there are others who may feel under enormous pressure and you just have to say, no, I'm not going to go there because this is really special. Because you are special, you say to your partner, and because of yourself, you say, I'm special, I'm not going to cheapen myself. And as I say, I think that that is profoundly counter-cultural. And it's something that we have to support and help one another in, and we have to help particularly our young people and our children in. A kind of prudish, Victorian view of sex in the Christian church where things are never said, they're only hinted at, there's only innuendo. Uh, no, we can't go there. We have to teach ourselves and we, we have to teach what God says from his word and we have to be positive about it. And some of us have to come overcome our embarrassment and our reticence, which is more cultural than it is biblical. And let me also say this. Let, Let's avoid the defensive mechanism that some of us have of turning everything into a joke. Because when you do that with sex, it then just becomes smut. And that's not helpful either. So as I say, there's, there's just a great deal there for us to take on board. Let me also just conclude this whole thing by talking about how this connects in terms of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, stress many times, the Song of Solomon is not an, an analogy. You don't look at every detail in the Song of Solomon and say, <coughs> right, how does this, you know, how is this Christ, or how is this the church, and so on, and what are the, the nose like the Tower of Lebanon? What's that got to do with Jesus? The answer is nothing. That's not, it's not an analogy in that sense, but it is an illustration and as we read in Ephesians 5, Paul takes that up and uses it to talk about the relationship between Christ and his people. And what he's really saying is this, is the relationship between Christ and his people is as intense as, in fact, it's more intense and it's more important than the relationship between a husband and wife. And that's where we can then take some of these things and we can apply them. And I want to do that in these three ways. 
First of all, I am a, a wall. The bride of Christ saying, I am a wall. In the Old Testament and also in the New, but especially in the Old, God is very concerned about his people being promiscuous spiritually, about being led away to different gods and different idols. And th this is a, a tough teaching for our culture as well, because in our culture, even Christians fall into the trap of saying, well, as long as we're people of faith, that's what matters. Actually, no. Personally, I think I'd rather hang around with atheists than with people of faith who don't worship or follow Jesus Christ. When you come to know Jesus Christ, when you come to follow Jesus Christ, you, you don't do it half-heartedly. You don't, as it were, get married and say, I do a bit, or I'll try it out for a wee while. When you become a Christian, you give yourself absolutely and totally to Christ because he's given himself absolutely and totally to you. And therefore, you cannot be spiritually promiscuous. You live for Jesus Christ. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot serve both God and the idols of this world. And it's really saying, no, I am not going to let these things come in and destroy my relationship with Jesus Christ. When you get married, sometimes people say this. I've heard people discuss marriage in this way. They'd say things like, well, how can you promise to love somebody all your life? How do you know you'll do that? You could change. Or they could say, how do I know that my partner you know, won't get fed up with me in five years' time or won't change how they feel or whatever? And the answer is, of course, you can't know that, but you can determine it. Because when you say, I'm getting married, you're saying, that's it. When you're committing yourself to someone, you say, I'm forsaking all others. Whatever happens, that's it. We are committed to one another. And when you become a Christian, you're not saying, I think I'll try out Christianity for a wee while, or um, I'll follow Jesus to see what it's like. You are saying, that's it. Now, he says that. To us, his commitment to us is absolute. But our commitment to him has to be the same way. And that's why half-hearted Christians, we shouldn't try and encourage that. Sometimes in the church, we're so desperate to get people in, we're so desperate to reach people, inverted commas, that we take people on and say, well, look, eventually they'll mature, eventually they'll become more committed, eventually they'll... No. We say to people right from the very beginning, this is everything. This is everything. This is not religion. This is not some kind of experiment. This is everything. And that is really hard. Jesus was an astonishingly unsuccessful preacher because initially he attracted thousands and yet when he taught them his message, most of them left. These are hard words, they said. These are hard words. And they left. The people who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem shouting hallelujah were the same people who ended up shouting crucify him. It's a tough call to be a Christian. You will not survive as a Christian without a wholehearted commitment. So it is just that determination that we're saying, no Lord, I'm not going to follow other gods. I'm following you completely and wholeheartedly. Let me hear your voice. Now that's the Lord, if you were to take it directly as an analogy, it would be 
Jesus asking us that we would, he would hear our voice and hear our voice in praise and hear our voice in prayer. But I think for us, the key thing is we want to hear the voice of Jesus. We've already sung, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Mark 9, 7, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Sometimes our relationship with Christ, or let me say my relationship with Christ, is an extremely one-sided relationship in which I am doing all the talking, in which I'm saying, Lord, give me this, and Lord, do this, and Lord, why this, and it's, it, it tends to be all about me. And even when I ask Jesus to speak, I'm really saying, Lord, can you speak about me? Can you speak about what I'm involved in? Can you speak about, can you give me guidance here? Can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? But what about just hearing Jesus speak just for the sake of hearing him speak? What about just being in his presence? What about if it wasn't about you at all? What would that be like? That would be real love. We want to hear what Christ has to say. Not what Christ has to say that's going to benefit us. Not what Christ has to say that's going to get us out of that mess or what Christ has to say to let us know what's going to happen here. But just, what does Christ have to say? Lord, we are very confused. Let us hear your voice. Lord, we are very wounded. Let us hear your voice. Lord, we are cold as ice. Let us hear your voice. Lord, we are angry and bitter and hurt. Let us hear your voice. Again, I, I, I just simply ask if you have that sense of longing to, to hear the voice of Jesus. And then I think the last thing is that we want to be together. The Spirit and the Bride say, come, from Revelation 22, 20. And let him who hears say, come, whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I always used to think as a child growing up when I'd hear in church people say things like, come to Jesus. I think, what does that mean? I'd love to come to Jesus. If Jesus was next door, I'd knock on the door and say, I'm here. What does it actually mean to come to Jesus? I think you can, you can look at it in different ways, but I think the most important things are we come in prayer, we bow before him humbly, we, are, we don't come with arrogance. We don't come seeking to bribe him. We don't come thinking that we can earn his acceptance. We come in our ignorance. We come in our sin. We come in our brokenness. We come in our confusion. And we say to him, Lord. And pretty well that's it. Because we want him to teach us. We want him to show us. We want him to be with us. We want him to love us. We want to be in his presence. We come together collectively to worship him because we want to know him. It's like you can come here and whether in the morning or in the evening, you can come here and we join together in worship and you can enjoy being with other people and you can enjoy the praise and you can say, oh, that went really well and the singing was really good or whatever. But it's, it's never, ever sufficient. It's not enough unless Christ is present. Where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst. And I think it's very, very difficult actually to describe what it means to come into the presence of Jesus Christ. You know it. 
when it happens, you know it. Have you ever been in church where you've, you've, you've walked out the door, and you had a big smile on your face and said, he was there? He was there? Or in the morning, you've been praying and reading and you felt the presence of God and then people say, well, don't go by your feelings and God is with you and all the time anyway and so on. Yeah, but it's really, really nice to feel it. And it's really nice to know that he is there. And for me personally, life is very difficult to live as a Christian without, as Boner put it, the oft-felt presence of the Lord. Now, Horatius Boner, the great free church hymn writer, said that um, in the 19th century that there was hardly a day gone by without, when he did not feel the presence of the Lord. Most of us are not in that situation. But just sometimes, it's just great to have that. So we come to Christ in that way. We come to Him humbly. We come seeking help. We come, as I say, in our brokenness. And I want to finish with this. And I love this just so much. It's Bernard of Clairvaux, and uh, his language is often very evocative in terms of uh, imagery of love and so on. And this is, for me, probably the favorite thing of my, that, that he wrote. Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills the breast. Discourage. We're put down. We're struggling. And just to think of Jesus. It's like having um, in your wallet a photograph of your, your wife or your husband or whatever. And just, you take it out every now and then. You just look at it and... The thought of your spouse just fills you. Well, it's a similar thing. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills the breast. But sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. Saying, I think, but there's something more, something a lot more. O hope of every contrite heart, O joy of all the meek, to those who fall, how kind thou art. How good to those who seek. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the very thought of you is something that fills us and yet we also long for so much more. We long to see your face and to rest in your presence. You are our hope. You are our joy. You are the one who lifts up those who are fallen and broken. You are the one who is good to those who seek. May each of us know that. In your name. Amen.